Hebrews chapter 9 verse 16 through chapter 10 verse 4. The twenty-ninth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on March twentieth, two 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 10, Translation, Installment 2016, number 2, accompanies this talk. We will be pressing on in the book of Hebrews. We're going to start part 18. That would be starting with 916 in your normal Bible. Paragraph 47, part 18 in my translation. In this, he's been comparing and contrasting the two covenants, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as over against the new covenant that he identifies as that covenant that Jeremiah 31 predicts, promises. He's been comparing those two covenants, and in particular, he's been comparing the basis for divine mercy that you would think exists in the Mosaic covenant as over against the true and real and ultimate basis for divine mercy that exists in the new covenant. And to say the same thing another way, he's comparing the way you deal with sin in your life under the two covenants. In the Mosaic covenant, you offer up animal sacrifices that are prescribed by the Mosaic covenant. In the new covenant, you do something else. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that something else is before we're done today. When we get to part 18, this, I would argue, is the heart of his argument in a lot of ways. Because remember the question that he's addressing Is it appropriate? Is it valid? Is it plausible that God would send his Messiah into the world and have him die, have him be crucified by the Romans? Is that Messiah-like? Does that make any sense? That's what he has to answer. In this next part, paragraphs 47 and 48, he's going to make the case, the central, essential case that he has to make for why it was appropriate that the Messiah would die. So that's what we're going to look at today. Before I read my translation, though, let me read the New American Standard translation, because I want you to notice how different my translation is. I'm either terribly wrong or are terribly wrong, one or the other, and I'll leave that to you to decide in the final analysis. In 9.16, he begins... For where a covenant is, and I will point out the New American Standard is the only English translation that I looked at where this is translated covenant. All other English translations translate this testament, and there's a reason behind that. For where a covenant or a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a testament, I'm going to change it to testament like most of the translations have. For a testament is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first testament was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken, and then he goes into 
the scene that we'll talk about a little bit in Exodus, where as he comes down off the mountain at Mount Sinai, God instructs him to take a branch of hyssop and dip it in some blood and sprinkle it on like everything. So everything gets sprinkled with blood. And this is before the covenant is even ratified, is even cut. This is to begin the process to inaugurate the covenant. But the critical thing for my purposes right here, 16 and 17, for where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a testament is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first testament was not inaugurated without blood. It's impossible to read that translation, it seems to me. I can remember from way back in childhood reading that and thinking, oh, I see what he's saying. When you make a last will and testament, you make a last will and testament where the terms of the testament don't take effect until you've died. So there has to be a death in order for the terms of the testament to come into force and to apply. So there you go. I never quite knew where to go after that. So there you go. (laughs) There are some things about that that are odd. Wasn't God the one making the covenant? It wasn't Jesus making the covenant, wherever you understand that covenant to be, whatever the new covenant is, it's not Jesus making the covenant, it's God making the covenant. Well, if that argument is valid, that when you make a last will and testament, you have to die before it comes into force, then don't we have to wait for God to die before the covenant comes into force? That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like Paul would even dream of such a thing. But then, God, Jesus, same person, different names, no big deal. So if Jesus died, that's the one dying that makes this testament come into force. Totally incoherent, garbled, I don't understand it, I don't know how I could understand that, but that seems to be what the translators of our English Bible thought that Paul was saying. And I glanced at a couple of commentators, and that's what the commentators think Paul is saying here. And what's the problem with that? It is completely disregarding the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. It's just drawing this paragraph out, trying to translate the language in this paragraph without any regard for everything that's led up to this and everything that follows this. It's not really trying to understand it in the context of an argument. My translation, I've attempted to do that. I've attempted to understand what on earth is Paul actually arguing? What is he saying that makes sense in the context of his argument? When I come across this paragraph, it is striking to me that in my experience, it seems like the book of Hebrews is the most mistranslated book in the New Testament. Just at very critical points, they take a right turn when they should have taken a left turn or vice versa. And it's part of what makes Hebrews so hard to read. Because they have, the translators have steered you in a certain direction, but it's steering you in a direction that doesn't help you understand the flow of thought that Paul was intending to lay out for you. So I may be wrong about this, but just my knee-jerk reaction is Hebrews is probably the most mistranslated book that we're dealing with here. So let me go back to how I think it should be translated now. So this is paragraph 47. Now, where there is a covenant, the death of the one subject to it is a necessary pre-existing reality. Pre-existing, obviously, is not in the text. That's for clarification. But the death of the one subject to it is a necessary reality. 
Indeed, any binding covenant is over dead men, because at no time is one in force when the one subject to it stands to receive life. Accordingly, the first covenant was not inaugurated apart from blood. For when every commandment in accord with the divine Torah had been spoken by Moses to all the people, taking the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And even the tabernacle and all the implements of the ritualistic service he likewise sprinkled with the blood. Indeed, nearly everything was cleansed with the blood in accord with the divine instruction. Indeed, apart from the shedding of blood, release from the divine wrath would not occur. So then, it is necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these offerings, but the heavenly realities themselves are cleansed with better offerings than these. Okay, so what is he saying here? It was after studying the book of Galatians that I finally, I think I finally grasped what it is that he's saying here in Hebrews, because he makes the same argument in the book of Galatians. And that is, when God, in the time of Moses, made a covenant with Israel, he was making a covenant with a people who were already condemned to death. They were dead men, which is contrary to the way I grew up thinking about this. And most of you probably have had the impression that why do we die in relationship to the law, the Mosaic Covenant? Because God came along to a people and said, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll do these things, you'll live. If you don't do these things, you'll die. So it's up to you to decide whether you will live or whether you will die. And so why do we die under the Mosaic Covenant? Because we chose to disobey rather than to obey. Well, that's true, but what's the dynamic at work there? Are we morally neutral people who have an option to either earn and deserve and gain and attain life through our obedience, and the only reason we won't is that we choose disobedience instead? Or is God coming to a people desperately in need of mercy and saying, I'm willing to be merciful but here are the conditions upon which I'm going to extend mercy to you. Keep this covenant, and I will grant you mercy. Though you deserve condemnation and death, I will actually give you life if you will keep my covenant. But if you don't keep my covenant, if you disregard it and disobey me, then I will give you the condemnation and death that you deserve. And you see the difference? One is coming to people who already, for some reason stand condemned. The other one hasn't decided whether you are worthy of condemnation or not. It depends on what you're going to do in relationship to the covenant. Paul clearly argues in Galatians, I will argue if I ever teach it, and we ever get there, Paul clearly argues in the context of Galatians, it's the former. We are worthy of condemnation simply by virtue of who we are. We are born, bred, created by God, as rebels against God who are inherently and innately depraved, inherently in rebellion against him, and are worthy of condemnation of death because of who we are. That's just reality. That's just the facts. The covenant was God reaching into history and extending mercy 
to those who will respond, to those who will receive it, to those who will accept it. Do you see how that's the inverse of how we normally think about this? Okay, well, that's what he's saying here. Now, where there is a covenant, the death of the one subject to it is a necessary pre-existing reality. He's saying, look, death is the destiny of every human being by virtue of the fact that they're a human being. I don't care what covenant we're dealing with. When God extends himself to make a covenant with people, what kind of people is extending himself to make a covenant with? Damnable people, condemned people, people who are dead already. They have the doom of death hanging over their head already. That's who he's making the covenant with. Indeed, any binding covenant is over dead men. Saying the same thing there, in in other words. Indeed, any binding covenant is over dead men because at no time is a covenant in force when the one subject to it stands to receive life. We already stand condemned even when we ratify the covenant and make ourselves subject to the covenant. Who are we that are making ourselves subject to the covenant? People desperately in need of the mercy that that covenant is offering because we in and of ourselves are dead. We don't stand to receive life. Okay, then it makes sense why he goes to Moses. Accordingly, the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant now is what he means by that, Accordingly, the first covenant was not inaugurated apart from blood. Okay, now to understand that, we have to understand what blood signifies in Paul's mind here. And this is how he's reading blood throughout the whole system of the Mosaic covenant. What does the blood represent? The blood represents that which you are offering up to God to appeal to God for mercy. It's not, as I have always been inclined to, to take it for most of my life. It's not that which washes away guilt. It's not that which accomplishes justice. It's not that which puts the scales of justice aright because it pays for the injustice of my moral depravity so that it brings me back to a morally neutral state where I don't owe God my condemnation and my death any longer. That's not the role of blood in the Mosaic Covenant. It's the high priest going to the mercy seat to offer God a gift in hopes that God will be delighted enough with the gift that God will decide to be merciful rather than just, that God will not give the worshiper what is his due or the nation what is its due, but that he will give the worshiper or the nation the life and the prosperity and the blessing that they don't deserve instead as an act of mercy. Well, Accordingly, the first covenant was not inaugurated apart from blood. So you see what he's saying? Israel required mercy on God's part to even have a covenant established with them. So before or in the same ceremony where Moses reads the law to them, and instructs them in what it is that God is going to require them, as a part of the very same ceremony, he's saying, may you be forgiven, may you be forgiven, may you be forgiven, may you be forgiven, may you be forgiven. May everything we are and everything we touch be, may the taint of our own depravity that is on it be overlooked by you, God, as we enter into this covenant with you. I mean, that was the significance of the ceremony. Until I understood what Paul was saying here, 
the significance of that ceremony was lost on me. It never occurred to me that that was an obvious, clear, unmistakable implication of what was happening there. These are not people who God's not sure yet whether or not they deserve blessing or cursing. We're going to have to find out. Let's give them a law and see what they do with it so we can find out. God is very clear what they deserve. They deserve to be smashed, destroyed, condemned. But he's going to overlook that fact that they are people who inherently are in need of destruction, and he's going to enter into a covenant relationship with them where some of them, if they will give him their heart, are going to receive mercy. And then all he does is he explains the Exodus account. For when every commandment in accord with the divine Torah had been spoken by Moses to all the people, taking the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, he sprinkled both the book itself, that is the covenant, the, they're probably tablets, but the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And even the tabernacle and all the implements of the ritualistic service, he likewise sprinkled with that blood. Indeed, nearly everything was cleansed with the blood in accord with the divine instruction. So this is what God told Moses to do. So he was drenching every part of their existence with mercy, the symbol of mercy, as they enter into this covenant. Indeed, apart from the shedding of blood, shedding... It's the flowing of blood. Apart from their blood being flowing, there would be no release from the divine wrath that could occur. If this is not on the basis of mercy, then there can't be a covenant at all. God has to withhold his wrath in order to even enter into covenant with them. So then, it is necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these offerings, but the heavenly realities themselves are cleansed with better offerings than these. Okay, so what is he saying? He's already made this distinction earlier in the argument, if you remember, between the heavenly tabernacle and the earthly tabernacle, the very presence of God in the heavenlies and what the priests do here in their service here on earth. He's made that distinction. It doesn't mean that there actually is a tabernacle or a temple in the heavens. He's not being literal. He's just playing with this metaphor that what we do, what we act out as a ritual, as a part of the service of the temple or the tabernacle here on earth, there are realities that correspond to that. It's not religious, ritualistic realities that correspond to that. It's entirely different kind of realities that correspond to that. But there are corresponding realities. And we do need God's mercy. And it's going to come about as an appeal to God for mercy. And it's going to be granted to those who, what? Offer him what? Well, not animals, but a broken and contrite heart. That's the reality that corresponds to that that kind of thing. The copies of the things in the heavens are just these, this parable, this living parable that is acted out in the tabernacle or the temple. Those are the copies of the things in the heavens. He said the copies of the things had to be cleansed with the blood of animals. Now, what does it mean for them to be cleansed? Well, what it means to be cleansed is God's going to overlook the fact that this tabernacle you built is a human artifact. 
made by rebels against God out of all of their rebellion and in the midst of all their rebellion. God's going to overlook that. That is, he's going to consider that irrelevant and accept it as a place where he will meet you, as a place where he will do business with you. Well, why is that true? There's nothing objectively real about the tabernacle that doesn't make it unclean. It is objectively unclean in that all of the immorality of man is there and is involved in the making of the tabernacle. But God's going to ignore it. He's going to cleanse it. Cleansing, it's critical if we're going to understand Paul's argument. Cleansing is nothing more and nothing less than removing the sinfulness of something as from being relevant to my eternal destiny. It's forgiveness, what we would call forgiveness. Cleansing is not purification. It's not moral perfection. It's not taking an evil person and removing the evil out of them so that they become good. Cleansing is not the making righteous of a person, the making good of a person. It's the forgiving the fact that they're not good. I have been cleansed if God considers my evil irrelevant to what destiny he's going to give me, a curse or a blessing. Then I have been cleansed. The things in the temple are cleansed in the sense that God is going to deem it irrelevant how tainted they might be by human evil. Never mind. Yeah, they are, but I'm not going to count that against them. This has been set aside to be used by me to be the place where we do business, where I will do business with mankind. Okay, I'll do that. I will overlook the fact that it is tainted by human evil. Well, if it's only a matter of whether or not you can rightly perform the rituals in this space, then blood is sufficient to cleanse it, to kind of ritually, symbolically set it aside as its sinfulness being irrelevant. But not so if we're talking about something more significant than whether you can perform a ritual in that space. What if the issue is not that, but the issue is, are you going to go to eternal life or are you going to go to eternal destruction? Are you going to receive an eternal blessing or are you going to be cursed for all of eternity? When the issue is that important, blood of an animal doesn't do it. That's not going to be determinative as to whether you've been cleansed or not. The heavenly realities, those are the realities that pertain to my permanent eternal destiny. The heavenly realities themselves are cleansed with better offerings than these, he says. Okay, questions, comments on that paragraph? So back to Moses sprinkling the book and everything with, with blood. He's saying that Moses comes down off the mountain and says, before you can get started discussing the covenant and telling you what God wants of you, we've got to clear the decks here. We've got to remove. It's a preliminary qualification that you don't even meet to even mm-hmm. sit at the table. So what we're going to do is we're going to do this thing that says, for now, you're good enough to be here. Then he did it with all the elements of the law. I think it was the reverse order, if I recall. Mm-hmm. I think he read the elements of the law first, and then he ends it with this ceremony. And then that cleansed their temple so that they could engage in the law? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. It cleansed the people so that they can rightfully go into the tabernacle and, and do business with God, do the rituals, 
the implements themselves had to be cleansed. The, the book itself had to be cleansed. He says virtually everything had to be sprinkled with blood and cleansed before we could even get started doing what the Torah instructed us to do. Doesn't do much for their self-esteem. I mean, seriously. No. It's really, I'd be feeling like, why try? But I'm thinking about it's something I've got to accomplish, not it's something God, it's a place God, where God wants to put me or a process God wants to put me through. Mm -hmm. And the trying is the whole point. Yeah, that's what's critical about understanding what he's saying here. The law never, ever, ever, in the Protestant tradition, we have a tendency to stress it used to be the case that you made yourself worthy through your obedience to the law. And we stress that as opposed to justification by faith. Well, that's not exactly right. There was always the proviso that it was impossible to do. Yeah. Which is strange because they're saying no matter how good-hearted and committed and disciplined and faithful you are in doing the law, you just won't live long enough to do it all. Right. And you'll flunk because you ran out of time or there wasn't enough light in the day or you were taken into Babylon. And It seems like a dumb way to be disqualified. Yeah, and it's not the reformers were wrong. There are parts of Paul where that is what he says because Paul understands that that's the mindset of some of his contemporary Jews. But that's not always his argument, and it's not always true. And it's certainly not what God intended in the law. I remember teaching it years and decades ago that it was this divine joke. Do this and you will live. Ha, 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 ha. Secret is you can't possibly do it. And God knew that. But what became very inconvenient about that is you read something like Deuteronomy and Moses seems to be saying this is totally doable. Could have fooled Moses that this wasn't doable. So where was that coming from? Well, that was coming from the perverse mindset of some Jews who had forgotten, who never did realize that they already came to the law depraved, unworthy people before they even read it. But here and in Galatians, the point that he's making is you've got this huge problem that needs to be solved before you even know about the law, is that you stand condemned already. So the other Protestant thing I heard growing up was the law brings death, Mm -hmm. but brings death means it reveals it, not it creates it, right? Exactly. So this first line here, now where there is a covenant, the death of the one subject to it is a necessary pre-existing reality. I used to read, oh, well, that's easy. Yeah, wherever you have the Mosaic covenant, death is going to be necessary and inevitable Because no human being can keep the law, so every human being is going to be subject to the curse and the death that the law puts on them for not keeping it. It's not his point here. His point is not that the covenant brings about your death. His point is you're already dead the minute you enter into and make yourself subject to the covenant. You're already dead. What the covenant offers you is mercy, if you will keep it. So it sounds like As far as eternal mercy, eternal life for either receiving mercy or not receiving mercy, Christ was just as important to the Jews as it is to us today. Yes. I mean, that's basically what we're saying here, right? Right, exactly. So if Christ never came, it didn't matter what they were doing in the Old Testament. Even though it was foreshadowing what was coming, it was not going to take, they were in the same fix as what, we would be today without Christ coming. Exactly, yeah. Could you review for us one more time Greek word that is translated cleansed? Can you go through that again for us? 
Okay, it's katharizo. The word just means cleanse. I think it's be what you would do when you took a bath. You'd clean yourself. The question is, what is it a metaphor for? If you think of the dirt on your body as immorality or evil, as that which I am, then cleansing would be removing the evil from me. I would cease being an evil person, and I would become a good person. I would cease being godless, and I would become godly if I were cleansed. But everywhere that it's used in the Old Testament, and and I'm now convinced everywhere it's used in the New Testament as well, what they understand cleansing to be is not removing the evil, but removing the relevance of the evil in the eyes of God for how he's going to deal with me, how he's going to treat me. Because I'm dirty with this evil, what I deserve is condemnation, destruction, ultimately. That's what I deserve. If I've been cleansed, no longer is that evil that is actually objectively on me, but no longer is that relevant to the outcome of my existence. God isn't going to deal with me like a dirty person. He's going to deal with me like a clean person. That's in effect, I think, what is being said. Because the whole idea of cleansing is everywhere a metaphor. It's not some kind of serious ontological reality. Again, growing up, I thought more in terms of literal realities that Jesus' blood was better than borax. It could scrub the in that we went back and forth, right? No one ever really even asked the question, let alone answered it for me. What is it scrubbing off of me, the evil or the guilt? And mostly we talked about guilt, I think. It's just removing the guilt. It's literally ontologically removing it so that even if God wanted to look at me as guilty, he'd be wrong to do so because it's been removed by the blood of Jesus. And I think that's how I was taught it. That's how I was encouraged to look at it anyway. That's not how it's been used. It's not how John uses it in 1 John. It's not how Paul's using it here. Cleansing is simply, it is forgiveness. Cleansing doesn't change me one whit, but it changes my destiny completely. Because God's not going to... That's why one of the most common verbs that you use in the New Testament for how God deals with sins is either passing them over or letting them go. That's an act of considering them irrelevant, not an act of removing them so they don't exist any longer. And cleansing, I would argue, is right in keeping with that. That's how the metaphor is used. So it's basically forgiveness. It's very important to understand that because so many of us are confounded by our lives. If I've been cleansed, how come I don't act like it? How come I act like such a dirty scoundrel when I've been cleansed? Well, because the cleansing didn't consist of making me not a dirty scoundrel. It consisted of forgiving me for being a dirty scoundrel and telling me that that hunger in my heart for something better was going to be satisfied one day because God was going to be merciful to me, a dirty scoundrel. So I'm wondering if there isn't a giveaway that we've overlooked. In a New American, verse 22, he says, According to the law, uh, a towel size, a towel size, a towel size, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, that sounds like he's talking out most... It sounds like we should have figured out that if things are cleansed, why is there need for forgiveness? But he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, Okay, exactly. It seems like, but if there's shedding of blood, we shouldn't need forgiveness. 
That's right. If it is cleansiness right. in the sense that we are inclined to take it. Yeah, exactly. Should, that, should we have noticed that before? I mean, Probably. Yeah, we should have. But I went for years not noticing that. I wrestled for a long time over what is cleansing? Is it forgiveness or is it sanctification? Is it making us holy? Is it making us righteous? And it, it's only by getting enough passages under the belt where in each and every case, I realize and he's talking about forgiveness here. Well, but what about those other ones? Well, I don't know. But I've gone to enough passages now where it seems like every time he uses that metaphor, it's always forgiveness. Okay, I'm a little confused because going back to Moses and his sprinkling of everything to cleanse it, and that means forgiveness of all of that stuff, if they keep the law. No, I I don't think... Because it appears... What I'm thinking... Okay, let me think what I'm saying, what I'm thinking is it sounds like they sort of start off cleansed, but then they have to keep the law to be forgiven. Well, you have to keep in mind a very important distinction right from the beginning with the Mosaic Covenant. There's being clean, and there's being clean. One way of being clean is for it to be okay for you to set foot in the tabernacle and to bring your lamb and to have the priest take your lamb and do his thing with it, and so on. You are a Jew in good standing such that you are allowed to participate in the religious life of Israel. Well, you can't do that if you're not clean. If you happen to trip over a dead body on the way in, you better not go into the tabernacle because you're unclean until you have been cleaned again, right? So it's what we call ritual purification that is With respect to whether or not you can participate in the rituals, you can be clean. Is being clean in that sense make you morally forgiven such that you're a child of Abraham and you're going to enter into your eternal life? No way. Not necessarily. You can be clean ritually to the end of your life and go straight to hell and not collect $200 if there were a hell. But clean in the sense that Paul is interested in the book of Hebrews, is the other kind of clean. The clean where my sin, my moral guilt, my moral depravity is not going to be held against me by God. He's not going to give me what I deserve for that. He's going to grant me life instead. That's a different clean. But in relationship to what is going on in the Old Testament and in the covenant there, it still seems that as though they have to try to do something. Yeah, they're supposed to keep the covenant. The covenant, which they couldn't. No, they could. They could. And yeah. did they? I guess I'm See, just what, what we have to understand. The way I was taught, too, is that they couldn't keep the covenant. Well, when Paul says they couldn't, what Paul is getting at is they couldn't be good people. And the standard held up by the covenant for you and me is that we be truly good, that we be truly godly people. Can any human being do that? No. In that sense, no human being can keep the covenant. But if you go back to Deuteronomy, if you go back to Exodus, if you go back to the institution of the Mosaic Covenant, was God requiring people to be perfectly godly and perfectly righteous? No. If you caught yourself not being good, then you need to take an animal to the temple and give it to the priest for an offering to appeal to God for mercy. If you did that, you kept the covenant. You honored God, you honored God's covenant, and you honored God who made the covenant with you by respecting him enough 
to do what he instructed you to do when you didn't live up to the moral standard that God was asking you to live up to in the law. But that would count as keeping the covenant when you did that. See what I'm saying? (laughs) Sort of. So in that sense, the covenant was fully capable of being kept if you weren't hard-hearted in rebellion, one who would disregard God and didn't have any intention of honoring him, then, of course, you didn't. Why offer an offering? I don't really care. But the one who did offer an offering would be the one who had a heart who wanted to do what God instructed me to do. I've got a question that you may not know the answer for, but you keep on mentioning the tools and the book God cleansed along with the people. Hmm. I'm wondering why the objects needed to be cleansed because I don't see them as having morality. Yeah, I don't know for sure. The only thing I can think would be who made those, the goldsmiths and the, I mean, the metalsmiths and the people who dealt with the fabric, and who were they? They were rebels, depraved, evil, wicked human beings. And so everything about what we are offering up to God is an extension of who we are, and who we are deserves condemnation and destruction. So I think a way of kind of rubbing our nose in that and highlighting the fact that we are so depraved is even the stuff we made to give to God is tainted by the fact that it came from us. Something like that. Okay, should we go on? Paragraph 48, this would be 924 in your normal Bible. Now, the the Messiah does not enter into handmade sacred precincts, copies of the true ones. Rather, he enters into the heavenly realm itself, now to appear before the face of God on our behalf. And it is not in order to offer himself many times, just as the high priest enters the sacred precincts year after year with blood belonging to another, For then it would be necessary for him to suffer many times from the foundation of this sacrificial system. But now at a particular point in time, at the completion of the ages, he presents himself to take away sin in view of his offering or sacrifice. Indeed, inasmuch as it is in store for men to die at a certain point in time, and after this is judgment, so indeed the Messiah died at a certain point in time, having been offered up to bear the sins of the many. He will be seen a second time by those who separated from their sin, eagerly await him for their salvation. Okay, so every covenant begins with mercy, the appeal to God for mercy in order to even enter into the covenant. So what do we have with the new covenant? The Messiah does not enter into handmade sacred precincts, copies of the true ones, that same metaphor that he's been playing with several times before. Rather, he enters into the heavenly realm itself, now to appear before the face of God on our behalf. So as our high priest, all the way back to Melchizedek and Psalm 110, as our high priest, he enters into the very presence of God to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And on our behalf, how? To appeal to God for mercy for us. And it is not in order to offer himself many times, and then he contrasts that with the high priest under the Mosaic Covenant, just as the high priest in the Mosaic Covenant enters the sacred precincts year after year after year with blood belonging to another. 
So the high priest in the Mosaic Covenant comes with the blood of the bull, and each year, every year on the Day of Atonement, enters into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies year after year after year. Not his own blood, and he keeps repeating it annually. With the Messiah, it's not like that, he says. It's not in order to offer himself many times, for then it would be necessary for him to suffer many times. And then most English translations have from the foundation of the world. But I think in this context, I think it's pretty clear what he means here. The word is cosmos that gets translated world, but the world is not the only cosmos. Cosmos just simply means an ordered system, any ordered system. So the ordered system that he has in mind here is that ordered system whereby you follow the instructions, the rules that God laid out for you about how you deal with sin. What offering do you bring? When do you bring it? What does the priest do with it? That's an ordered system of rules. I mean, think about, what is it, Robert's Rules of Order that you use in a meeting where you're formally wanting to get something done? Well, that's a cosmos. That's Robert's cosmos of meetings for running a meeting. The same rules that would dictate how you are to conduct business formally in a meeting, you have comparable rules that define how you are supposed to offer up offerings to God in the temple, how, where, who, and so on and so forth. That's the cosmos of the sacrificial system. So that's the way I'm translating it here. For then it would be necessary for him to suffer many times from the foundation of this cosmos that is attached to the new covenant. You had one cosmos for the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Now you have a brand new cosmos for the new covenant. But if there was a direct analogy between what the high priest did under the old cosmos of the old covenant and what Jesus does under the new cosmos of the new covenant, he'd have to like be crucified annually, right? But Paul is making a reductio ad absurdum argument, but obviously that's absurd. Obviously that ain't going to happen. Obviously that didn't happen. So they're not the same in that regard. They're different in that sense. Rather, now, at a particular point in time, at the completion of the ages, he, and I I don't know quite how to translate this, it's literally something like he became manifest to take away sin in view of his sacrifice. So what he's saying is, instead of there being an annual suffering of Jesus, of the Messiah, at one point, at a particular time in history, The Messiah was sent into history to become visible as a visible actor, player in history. And to what end? What was his purpose? To take away sin in view of the sacrifice that he made. The sacrifice is the sacrifice of his own life by voluntarily going to the cross. So that's how this priest functioned. At the right particular point that God had assigned in history, he came into the world and made himself manifest And he went to the cross. He went to his death. Much to the chagrin of everybody around him. And I would argue this is what Paul calls the secret hidden from past ages and generations. The fact that when the Messiah came initially, he would be coming to die. That was just completely lost 
on the Jews who had studied the prophets over the millennia. That was completely lost on them. It's not that it wasn't there, but it was there in a manner that was cryptic enough and fragmented enough and piecemeal enough that it was easy to miss it. It was easy to misunderstand the picture of what it would look like with the Messiah being sent and coming into the world. The fact that he would come twice, once to die, and then much later come in victory and conquest to conquer all the enemies of God and subdue them and subject them and establish his kingdom, that was completely missing in their perspective. And Paul says that's because it was the secret that was hidden from past ages and generations. Well, that's what he's saying here. That's how he functioned as a high priest at that particular point in time. At the completion of the ages, he became manifest to take away sin in view of his sacrifice. Okay, again, take away sin is another metaphor. It's exactly like cleansing. Taking away sin is not removing the evil of an evil person. It's removing it as being relevant in how God is going to deal with you. Very much like the scapegoat in Israel. The high priest laid his hands on the goat. One of them they sacrificed, the other one they led out into the wilderness and let it go. What was that symbolizing? As I think it's in Isaiah, he talks about your sins being made as far as the east is from the west. It doesn't make them go away, but it's removing them from my consideration if I'm God. If I'm God, If the sins are taken away, they have been removed from my consideration. I'm not going to take them into account. I'm not going to consider them relevant. Well, they've been taken away then. So that's why Jesus came into the world the first time, to die and to provide the basis upon which your and my sins would be taken away, rendered irrelevant to God. Indeed, inasmuch as it is in store for men to die at a certain point in time, and after this is judgment, so indeed the Messiah died at a certain point in time, having been offered up to bear the sins of the many. I think the many is a technical term for Paul. He uses it in Romans. He uses it here. The many is basically a phrase that is used to describe the elect, who he considers to be the elect. He came to bear the sins of the many. He will be seen a second time by those who, separated from their sin, eagerly await him for their salvation. So yes, he came into the world and he died, but he's going to be seen a second time. In the interim, he was raised again from the dead, and he is going to come back a second time, and that's when we will experience our salvation. So he's linking salvation to the return of Jesus. Notice that it's going to be salvation from those who are separated from their sin. Again, cleansing, taken away, separated from your sin. Separated in what sense? Not that the sin no longer exists, but it's no longer being counted against you. It has been rendered, again, irrelevant to how God is going to look at you. And then the other thing that's characteristic of these people who are going to be saved is they are eagerly awaiting him for their salvation. So, yes, the first time he came, he came and he got himself killed, and then he just kind of split on us in a rather dramatic fashion. 
he split on this, but we are awaiting the day when he will return, when he will come again. And we, because of our faith in him, because we are trusting in him, are separated from our sin, and our hearts are eagerly longing for the salvation that he brings, we are exactly those people that he's coming back to save. Questions or comments on that? Nothing? Okay. One more paragraph quickly. Now, speaking with reference to the same offerings that they bring perpetually year after year, since the covenant has but a shadow of the good things to come, not the exact same likeness to those events, it is never at any time or in no way able to render teleos those who draw near. Now, I've already looked at this a couple of times as we've gone through here because this is as an explicit a statement as could be about how Paul looks at the relationship between the tabernacle and the temple on the one hand and the salvation that comes in Jesus. They are but a shadow of the good things to come, not the exact same likeness to those events. So he's not making the distinction between a likeness and a reality. He's making the distinction between a shadow and a likeness. You with me? You know, if you cast a shadow of this podium on the wall, there's a difference between the podium and the shadow. But if I take a picture of the podium, there's also a difference between the podium and a picture. This ain't the podium. This is a picture of it. That's not the podium. That's a shadow of it. But his point is not to make a distinction between the reality and these things, but the shadow and the picture. The things in the temple were not intended to be a photograph of the salvation that comes in Jesus that gives us a detailed picture of the dynamics and how it's going to work and the logic of it and the rationality of it. You couldn't know that by looking at the Mosaic temple or the tabernacle because they're different. It's like looking at a shadow when you look at those. There are some very, very, very rough outline the same, but it's only a rough outline the same as what's happening in Jesus. What's happening in Jesus is a completely different gig than what was happening in the tabernacle under Moses. Anticipating it, and this is reflective of the fact that there's some reality out there that has some correspondence to what we're doing here. But I can't see that by looking at this any more than you could see a podium by looking at its shadow. Follow? So I think that's the distinction he's making. Since the covenant has but a shadow of the good things to come, not the exact same image or likeness of those events, it is in no way able to render teleos those who draw near. And we've talked about what teleos is. He uses it consistently this way, and he's going to throughout the rest of the chapter. To be teleos is to be a person who has arrived at my intended and purposed state through my worship. In the Old Testament, if I bring an animal offering to the priest, why am I doing that? What's my goal? What's my purpose? Where do I want to get by doing that? I want to know that God is going to grant me mercy. If I come out of the temple confident that God is going to grant me mercy, or even more importantly, if I come out of the temple with God having decided to grant me mercy, then I am teleos, because I have achieved the purpose 
that I was setting out to achieve. I've achieved the telos that I was setting out to achieve. Well, he says, no way were those shadows, those mere shadows, anywhere remotely near being able to render me teleos. Nobody went out of the tabernacle having offered up an animal sacrifice and God looked down on them and went, yeah, because you gave me that animal, I'm going to grant you mercy because I really like that animal. I just not going to happen. It's not the way it works, not what God's interested in. In the paragraph coming up, he's going to say that explicitly. You don't want animals. You're not interested in animal sacrifices. It's not inherently or intrinsically valuable to God to give him an animal. He doesn't like really eat, and so it can't possibly please him. It's only symbolic. It's only a shadow. So it can't make one teleos, the person who draws near in worship. Because in that event, would not the bringing of offerings have stopped since no one would have a consciousness of his sins any longer? when once the worshipers had been rendered clean. The point that he's making is, if it actually really worked, that I could walk out of the tabernacle having offered an offering, and I had the knowledge that God was going to respond to my offering with, well done, good and faithful servant, on the basis of your faithfulness, I will grant you mercy. If I had the knowledge and understanding that that had happened, that that's how God had responded to my sacrifice. Paul is saying, sooner or later, you wouldn't really have any need to be taking animal sacrifices to back any longer. But in truth, in reality, given the way we really experience our religion, I think is what Paul is saying, did any of us really feel like we had secured, that we had provided the basis for God to grant me mercy by offering the animal? None of us really thought that. None of us really were in a frame of mind where we thought, i got to be good with God now because look at what I gave him. It just didn't work. It didn't work that way. He really is, I think, exploring the subjectivity, the, the inner thought processes of the worshiper. And he's saying the inner thought processes of the worshiper, if you're like me, a Jew who brought animal sacrifices to the temple all the time, you know good and well that we weren't convinced that this was going to work. If we were convinced that it was going to work or that it did work, we wouldn't have had to keep offering them. It's because they were just symbols that they had to keep being offered because they weren't the reality. They were only a shadow of the reality. And shadows of the reality don't cut it. They don't do it. Rather, in them is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sins. So what in fact happened instead, year after year, we were simply dramatically faced with the reality of my own damnable nature. I'm unworthy. I deserve destruction. I deserve condemnation. And year after year, I'm taking the animal to the temple that kind of symbolizes that fact. And I'm reminded of that fact. For that's all it could do is be that reminder, because the blood of bulls and goats does not remove sins. It's impossible for that. And then the next paragraph, he's going to explain, he's going to offer a support from Psalm 40, where David is saying, yeah, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't cut it. That's not where it's at. Questions or comments before we call it a day?
discussions I have on the internet with people about, there are some people who believe that when Paul talks about the sacrifices being a shadow, they make the next leap into thinking that Paul is saying everything Jewish is a shadow. Everything from the festivals to the animal sacrifices to how they don't mix cloth, all of that is a shadow. And what they mean by that is it's all been done away. God's not interested in that anymore. Uh, If he ever had a future covenant with Israel, it, it wouldn't look like that. It would look more Christian. I don't know. But by making that argument, they're dismissing the whole thing. Okay. What would be your, your view? Well, that's to miss an, Is it possible that God could have set it up that way? I suppose it's possible. There may be other things besides the sacrificial system, the propitiatory offerings, but you couldn't prove it by Hebrews, by the argument of Hebrews, because as we'll see coming up in the next section coming up, he's concerned with what's the difference between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And what he's been talking about exclusively is this, it has a new cosmos with respect to what offering I need to look to as, as to respond obediently to my sins in order that my sins might be forgiven. Well, that's pretty narrow. He's narrowly focused on mercy, propitiation, propitiatory offerings, and that kind of thing. Has nothing to say about festivals, Sabbaths, new moons, dietary regulations, anything like that, that's not in view anywhere here in Hebrews. So if you're going to make the case that those other things are also shadows in the same way that this is, you're going to have to make an independent argument that is not based on this. Because notice how important it is to him that there's a big difference between how I am forgiven in Jesus and what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant with respect to sins. Well, at least off the top of my head, I can't think of any comparable big difference between the dietary regulations and whatever it is that they might symbolize. Yeah, it's symbolic, but it's not a big difference that changes at a certain point in time. It is a shadow, if you will. It is an image. It is a picture. It is representational and symbolic rather than the essential reality. That's true. But that's not enough to say it's irrelevant to me now because if God has commanded it, he's commanded it. Just because it's not the reality, he's asked me to participate in a representation of the reality. Do I obey that or do I not obey that? Well, the closest thing that I could think of was in Galatians where Paul argues that the law was a tutor. But I ask him, well, if the law was a tutor then, why couldn't the law be the tutor now? Exactly. It is. In fact, that's exactly what Paul is arguing in Romans is that's the role it played in his life, and I would argue he is extrapolating that. That's the role it can play in any human being's life, will be the tutor to lead you to Christ in the sense that it brings you face-to-face with the reality of your condemnation and puts you in the market for salvation. No one needs to be saved if they're not headed for condemnation. So you have to know you're headed for condemnation in order to be in the market for a rescue. Okay.